As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your dulcet podcast host. So last week, I featured a guy who wrote a spec script, and bang, it's now a series on Apple+. Plus. But most of the time, that doesn't happen. You start out and you face rejection after rejection after rejection, and it's very easy to lose hope, of course, when that happens. But if you really believe in yourself and you're willing to tough it out, you can break through. Now take, for example, David Cypress. He is one of the best and funniest cartoonists for the New Yorker magazine. He sent in 10 drawings a week for 25 years before he finally made a sale. And like I said, today he's one of their top guys. David has a brand new book out called What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir. Here I'm holding it up so you can take a look at it. He's my guest this week and next, and you are going to love meeting David Cypress. Hollywood and the Vine. Okay, so this is a real treat for me, David, because you're one of my favorite New Yorker cartoonists. You have a, a great memoir out. And so let's start from the beginning so that people kind of get an idea of who you are. You wanted to be a cartoonist from the time you were six, Yes, I wanted to be a New Yorker cartoonist from the time I was six. That's absolutely a fact. Wow. I, I, when I was six, I didn't even know what the New Yorker was. <laughs> Where did you grow up? The San Fernando Valley in okay. Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. So the New Yorker uh, arrived in the San Fernando Valley like 1973. <laughs> <laughs> well, I on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the, the New Yorker magazine was everywhere all the time. So my obsession with it was because my mother also really loved it. And uh, I started looking at it around that age and I looked at those cartoons and I thought, hmm, I could do that. So you specifically wanted to write for the New Yorker. You didn't think, well, maybe it'd be fun to have a comic strip or to be an animator for Disney well, yeah, a part of it was it just looked easy to do. It didn't involve color. It involved making lines, which was something I knew I could do and I loved to do. My mother used to take me to the Metropolitan Museum to look at art and look at the paintings. And I thought, oh, those are great, but uh, just that looks too hard to do. And then the same with everything else you mentioned. And it, it seemed like if I just went in my room and put a pencil in my hand and, and it took, picked up a piece of paper... I could make my own cartoons right away. So I was attracted to it because it seemed possible for me. It's interesting. As a kid, I used to sit in my room and draw comic books, sort of the same thing, where I was intrigued with lines and it just seemed too hard to learn color and painting and that type of thing, which you know I'm sure makes me a great artist. But the other side of that, is not just drawing the cartoons, but coming up with the gags. Were you always funny? <laughs> I'm a lot funnier on the page than I am in person, I think. I always had an ear 
I'm not really sure why. It's just always been there. And when I read the captions in The New Yorker, I also thought I could do that too. So, yeah, I've always, and people, you know, since I put my, my book out, I've gotten uh, lots of messages from elementary school classmates and such. And they all say, oh, you were always a funny guy. So I guess I was, even as a kid. Do you have any of those old cartoons? I still have some of my old comic books, which I'm not showing anybody. Well, in my book, my the first drawing I show is my very first cartoon that I drew, and uh, it's a real it's a it's a work of incredible genius. It's a dog <laughs> standing next to a tree trunk, barking at the tree, going bark bark. Get it? Okay, uh, there's a pun. There's a joke there. You know, you'd be watching Rocky and Bullwinkle, and their episode titles weren't much better. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I did love Rocky and Bullwinkle, though, I must admit. Now, your father was not thrilled with the idea of you wanting to become a cartoonist, was he? To say the least, no. He uh, he was an immigrant. He had very clear ideas about what he wanted his son to turn into, uh, maybe an ambassador to the United Nations or a history professor or a president or something like that. Cartoonist was not among the things he wished for for me. And he, he got very angry when I may, finally made my decision to drop out of graduate school and I told him, I, uh, I'm going to be a cartoonist. Uh, yeah, you were at Harvard. What You were studying what, Russian history? Yeah, I was in a master's program in what they called Soviet studies, which has a certain relevance today, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, I, the day I called my father and told him I was leaving, not a good day. Oh, so, I, I can imagine giving up all that money, leaving behind all that money on the table, being a Russian historian. Yeah, right. That's a way to get rich. <laughs> uh, speaking of money, I think what my father said, with all the money we spent to give you a, a world-class education, you want to be a cartoonist? <laughs> so that's how that conversation went. Well, good for you for sticking to your guns, because I know there are a lot of people who would bow to their parents' wishes and be unhappy being a grocer or a lawyer or an insurance adjuster. And you certainly had the conviction and the passion for it, but you needed a lot more because now you're trying to get into the New Yorker. How long did it take you... I, I before you sold people it, it took me 25 years of submitting before i sold i had cartoons everywhere else i could not break into the magazine but that was the only thing i wanted to do was to be in that magazine so i just kept submitting you know i take a month or two off now and then but basically since uh 1971 72 i i've been submitting cartoons Sometimes now when you I, say submitted cartoons a batch of cartoons is what, 10? And you have to, in those days, I guess you had to draw 10 cartoons and send them in, right? Yeah, you, you, you put them in your envelope with your return address envelope. And yeah, send them in. They, even today, and uh, I think that they like to know that you can do it on a weekly basis. And so I think that's part of the reason why Emma Allen, the current cartoon editor, is a little less strict about this than Bob Mankoff was or Lee Lorenz before Bob, Bob always said 10 to 15 a week. 
Uh, Emma has eased up on that a little bit, but part of that was just to see that it's something you could do consistently. So that's what I did. Uh, probably around 10 a week for all those years. And when I moved back to New York, I lived in Boston for 15 of those years when I was mailing. And then when I moved back here in 83, I started bringing in that envelope in person, which was a mildly humiliating experience because take the elevator up to the offices and all the other cartoonists who are in the magazine got to go in the inner sanctum and meet with his holiness, Lee Lorenz. And I would stand outside and hand mine to the receptionist. And then I'd come back on Friday, pick it up from the receptionist, go to the elevator, say a little prayer, open it up, take out my rejection slip and think, okay, on to next week. Did you ever get any feedback? I got one, (laughs) I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I got one message once written on on my rejection slip. I got so excited because I saw some handwriting on my rejection slip that was attached to a particular cartoon. And the words were, I did this one 10 years ago. (laughs) So that was a little discouraging. (laughs) <laughs> but, but you know, when Bob Mankoff took over as cartoon editor in 1997, he had always known and liked my work. And so that, that was the key for me. No more rejection slips after that. And got to go in in person every week. So pretty much it was the fact that one guy didn't like you and that one guy happened to be the gatekeeper. And, uh, and you still, you stuck it out week after week. You said you were selling everywhere else. So at least you had some idea that there were some people who appreciated my work. I, I think if you try for that long, you have to have a certain belief, which, I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't a lot of pain and suffering. There was, and a lot of self-doubt. But on the whole, I kept looking at the magazine and I kept thinking, it's their problem. It's not my problem. I felt like mine were just as good, if not better than a lot of what I saw in the magazine. I thought someday somebody's going to notice that. And it's funny because several years ago, I did a panel discussion at a museum here, chaired by Lee Lorenz, who was the editor who rejected me all those years. <laughs> he said he had no memory of ever seeing any of my submissions. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> right. Now, did you hate this guy? No, actually, you, you probably hated him when when you were sending in these submissions. It's like Jesus Christ, what do I got to do? Well, you know the thing about the New Yorker, even well, it's just always been true. It's very opaque. It's it's there. You know there are people involved there, but it's like it's the magazine, and so it was more. I didn't have a sort of personal grudge against him. I just felt like it was the magazine that was rejecting me. And uh, he's actually a really nice guy and a very talented, great cartoonist. Also a very talented musician. Um, and I like him a lot. And I don't resent the fact that he ruined my life for 25 years. I really don't. <laughs> More with David Cypress, but first a word about Honey. Honey, as you know, is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes, and it applies the best ones it finds to your cart. There are over 30,000 stores that have signed up for this, and it's free. 
and it really works. How? Well, okay, uh, you're shopping online, you go to checkout, and then the honey button drops down, and all you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a couple of seconds, it does its thing, it finds coupons, it applies them, and you see your total go down and down and down. I saved $18 just last week buying more art supplies. So if you don't already have honey, you could straight up be missing out on free savings. Like I said, it's literally free and it installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and more importantly, you are supporting this podcast. So get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash Levine. Once again, that's joinhoney.com slash Levine. Did you change your style during this uh, period? Did you change the type of jokes, uh, figuring, okay, they don't like this kind of joke, so maybe I'll do the kind of joke that I see in the magazine on page 18? I think, you know, sometimes people say, what advice do you have for a budding cartoonist? And my main piece of advice concerning that magazine is don't try to do what you think of as a New Yorker cartoon. Just keep doing what you think of as, in my case, a David Cypress cartoon. I I somehow knew that I wasn't able to draw like Saxon. I wasn't able to have ideas like Barney Toby or some of the other greats who were in there. It just wasn't who I am. I was this person. I had a particular kind of drawing, which was not like anything I'd seen in the magazine. My ideas were often about things that weren't being covered in the magazine, but I just ignored that. Because as an artist, that's not the way to figure out what you should be doing. The only way to figure out what you should be doing is to look in, not look out like that. And so I never changed anything in order to get myself accepted. Again, I thought it was their problem, not my problem. You know, that's such great advice. A lot of writers listen to this podcast and... You know, you face the problem if you're writing a script for a certain showrunner or you're writing a screenplay for a certain producer and it's always in your head, okay, is he going to like this joke? Is he going to like this line? Is he going to like this? And it can be debilitating. It, It really can. And it is a hard lesson to learn to go, you know what, I'm going to write what I think works and what I think is funny. And if it doesn't work for them, whatever. And uh, eventually my partner and I, when we would turn in scripts for Cheers or for Frasier, we would always hand it in and say, boys, there's nothing in here you guys can't fix. That's true. Let let me me tell you one thing uh, about submitting cartoons to The New Yorker. And getting those rejections. I mean, if you're handing in 10 or 15 ideas a week over the year, you're, I can't even count how many hundreds you hand in. And if you sell 20 a year, you're, you're doing pretty good. And all those rejections, what's interesting about it is there are some cartoons that I hand in that I believe in and they get rejected and I hand it in again and I hand it in again. And, and a lot of, cases, my resubmissions eventually sell. 
and it's not just true of me. Every other cartoonist who I know who submits to the magazine has told the same story because you got to figure that cartoon editor is looking at a thousand cartoons a week, a thousand roughs a week. You're not going to remember that three weeks ago you handed in that cartoon about uh, bald people. And so I, I, if there's a cartoon I love and they don't take it, I just keep submitting it until they do. You keep wait, you wait like three weeks or a month before you, uh, before you do. I wait a little time. Sometimes, you know, the thing about that, the rejection, I don't know what it's like in, in your other fields, but for me, the rejection is a kind of teacher. And although I said, I don't try to do New Yorker cartoons, it does help me kind of figure out what I need to change and do slightly differently in a particular drawing. Sometimes it's just a question of changing a single word to make it work. Uh, sometimes there's a problem with the drawing that I begin to see. So the rejection is, is kind of a way to, it's kind of a learning experience as well, which is a very positive spin on a completely depressing uh, experience. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, because again, you don't get any feedback. So in a sense, you're shooting at a moving target. You don't really know. My experience with the two cartoon editors I've worked with, Bob and Emma, neither of them have ever said a word to me that could be called feedback, like uh, you need to change this or this idea doesn't work because not a word. And all those years that Bob was the editor, he just he just never said a word to me. But that silence, too, was a kind of it, 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 it was liberating because it meant you were the one that had to figure that stuff out. And I learned a lot from that just continually looking at the work I hand in to see how I could make it better. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit. 25 years of rejection. What was it like when they finally said, okay, how did that happen? Walk me through that day. I can't remember, 1997. I was sitting in my studio and my fax machine buzzed and out came this fax from Emily Vitruba, who was the assistant to the cartoon editor at that time, just a very simple, uh, you, so we would like to buy this one, blah, blah, blah. I freaked out. I called <laughs> and it was like that one of the great, it was a, up to that point, the best day of my life. It really was. I, I was so overjoyed. And I mean, I tell in my memoir, I tell the story that the one person, the one thing my father might have, seen in a positive light about my decision to be a cartoonist was if he too knew what the New Yorker was about. Mm -hmm. So I got really excited. And as soon as I finished talking to Jenny, my wife, I called my dad uptown and I said, I sold the cartoon to the New Yorker. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. And what I didn't know, which uh, you have found out a little bit, I think is just because you sell a cartoon at a particular time doesn't mean it's going to appear in the magazine then. That's right. Or next week or next month. That, that's right. And, and I sold mine in October, like I said, and it didn't come out till July. And sadly, my father died in the interim. Oh. And uh, while in the last couple of months of his life, every week he'd call me and he'd say, David, I got the New Yorker. It's not in there. <laughs> and then after a while, I started saying, are you sure you didn't dream that? Are you sure you actually sold the cartoon? <laughs> so, he never got to see it, which I... It's quite seriously, it was very sad for me. What was it like, though, that phone call to your father telling him 
I sold to New York? Or did you kind of bury the lead and go, uh, did you see that Met game last night? God, they can't hold the lead. Oh, by the way, I sold a New Yorker cartoon. Well, first of all, my father, like me, was a Yankee fan, but, but that, that's uh, neither here nor there. I, did, I didn't know what to expect, and it, my father's level of excitement about anything related to my cartoon career was, was a little bit muted. But I did get a rise out of him that day. I did get a congratulations. And I, I got off the phone and I thought, I've told the two people I care about most in the world, now let's go out and have a drink. And that's what, uh, that's what we did. That's great. You know what you should have done? You should have said to your father, oh, and by the way, it pays $100,000 a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, that he would have understood. <laughs> of course, now when you submit, you can get into the inner circle and you can meet one-on-one with the cartoon editor. And I imagine you get some feedback there. Do you do that? Uh, well, first of all, it's a long, slightly long answer. First of all, since COVID started, nobody was going in. For sure. Years, really. I have maybe once or twice in, in the 24 years I've been in the magazine have gone in in person with my cartoons. I've gone in in person, uh, and when Bob was the editor, I used to go in and just put my batch down. There was you could you could also choose to put it on a pile on the assistant editor's desk, and Bob would look at them later. I really didn't like the experience of being judged in person in real time uh, about these precious little things that I had made, spent all week working on. I've never been done it with Emma. And even when I saw Bob in person, it wasn't exactly feedback. He just want to talk. He want to talk about the Yankees or something like that. Uh, and he'd go through the drawings one by one. And you wait, you sit there and think, is he, is he laughing? Is he smiling? And pretty soon I realized the stress wasn't worth it. And so I stopped any in-person interviews and then never have since. So all of the other writers who are sitting in this waiting area and they all have their batches do they compare? Do they check out each other's batches or are they carefully coveting their batches that no one can see? It depends on who you are. But I'll tell you this. I, one thing that has always heartened and pleased me was that cartoonists are incredibly generous that way. You know, we used to have the cartoonist lunch, which followed the stressful sit down with the editor every Tuesday morning. And a whole group of cartoonists would go out every week, and it's all the people you know and some you don't, and uh, sit at a long table at a restaurant in the theater district called Pergola des Artistes. And the pergola had a cheap lunch and a free glass of wine. And so we <laughs> chose that place. And people would take out their batches and pass them around, and other people would give them advice. And it's, as you know, it's such a competitive field. There are only these tiny number of slots for all these people. And yet it never stopped, as far as I could tell, any cartoonist from generously offering advice and assistance to to other cartoonists. And that's always been a great thing about cartoonists. I, I spent a number of years in the serious art world and uh, people just didn't behave like that. Uh, it's It's a very special thing about what we do. You know, I found that to be the case as well. Um, I've got a mentor, Julia Suits, and a number of other cartoonists who have been really helpful, and we've exchanged batches. And it's been, you know, for me as the new guy, great 
to hear, okay, this is good. Uh, no, they don't do these kind of jokes. It's it's really been super helpful. You seem to now get in. Every- one thing. I know sure. Julia really well. I've known her a long time. She's terrific. And uh, she's just, she's a really good cartoonist. So oh, just- she's a great cartoonist and a, and a wonderful person. And none of this would have happened for me had it not been for Julia Seuss. Oh, okay. Yeah, I absolutely love her. So you're pretty much in, it seems like, every week. Do you still get rejected? Well, first of all, that has changed a little bit. I, I was in every week until probably two or three years ago. Now it's less. And that is due to the wonderful change that has come, which is that Emma has let a lot more people in, a lot more diversity in the cartoons and cartoonists. And so my expectations of being in every week uh, are not what they used to be. I still get rejected a lot. But boy, I got to tell you, after doing this for 50 years, it's kind of water off a duck's back at this point. And I've also become so addicted and uh, fascinated by the whole idea of writing prose that uh, that anytime I I lose a little faith in the cartoon thing, I turn to that and I, I feel good about myself. Okay, there you go. That's part one of my two-part interview with David Cypress. Next week, we really get into the process and talk a lot more about uh, the humor that is required to do single-panel cartoons. It's a very interesting conversation, and there's a lot of insight. That's next week. But for now, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, to Bruce and Jason Miller. I have uh, an email address, should you wish to get in touch, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Instagram, where I am showing off some of my cartoons. That's Hollywood and Levine. Also on Twitter, at Ken Levine. So, tune in next week, more with David Cypress, right here on... Hollywood and Levine!